Book One, Chapter Twenty of the Bostonians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liz Morant. The Bostonians by Henry James. Chapter Twenty. She hoped she should not soon see him again, and there appeared to be no reason she should, if their intercourse was to be conducted by means of checks. The understanding with Verena was, of course, complete. She had promised to stay with her friend as long as her friend should require it. She had said at first that she couldn't give up her mother, but she had been made to feel that there was no question of giving up. She should be as free as air to go and come. She could spend hours and days with her mother whenever Mrs. Tarrant required her attention. All that Olive asked of her was that, for the time, she should regard Charles Street as her home. There was no struggle about this, for the simple reason that by the time the question came to the front, Verena was completely under the charm. The idea of Olive's charm will perhaps make the reader smile, but I use the word not in its derived, but in its literal sense. The fine web of authority, of dependence, that her strenuous companion had woven about her, was now as dense as a suit of golden mail and Verena was thoroughly interested in their great undertaking. She saw it in the light of an active, enthusiastic faith. The benefit that her father desired for her was now assured. She expanded, developed, on the most liberal scale. Olive saw the difference, and you may imagine how she rejoiced in it. She had never known a greater pleasure. Verena's former attitude had been girlish submission, grateful, curious sympathy. She had given herself and her young, amused surprise because— Olive's stronger will and the incisive proceedings with which she pointed her purpose drew her on. Besides, she was held by hospitality, the vision of new social horizons, the sense of novelty, and the love of change. But now the girl was disinterestedly attached to the precious things they were to do together. She cared about them for themselves, believed in them ardently, had them constantly in mind. Her share in the union of the two young women was no longer passive— purely appreciative it was passionate too and it put forth a beautiful energy if olive desired to get verena into training she could flatter herself that the process had already begun and that her colleague enjoyed it almost as much as she therefore she could say to herself without the imputation of heartlessness that when she left her mother it was for a noble a sacred use in point of fact she left her very little and she spent hours in jingling, aching, jostled journeys between Charles Street and the stale suburban cottage. Mrs. Tarrant sighed and grimaced, wrapped herself more than ever in her mantle, said she didn't know as she was fit to struggle alone, and that half the time, if Verena was away, she wouldn't have the nerve to answer the doorbell. She was incapable, of course, of neglecting such an opportunity to posture as one who paid with her heart's blood for leading the van of human progress— but Verena had an inner sense, she judged her mother now, a little for the first time, that she would be sorry to be taken at her word, and that she felt safe enough in trusting to her daughter's generosity. She could not divest herself of the faith, even now that Mrs. Luna was gone, leaving no trace, and the grey walls of a sedentary winter were apparently closing about the two young women. She could not renounce the theory that a residence in Charles Street must at least produce some contact with the brilliant classes. She was vexed at her daughter's resignation to not going to parties, and to Miss Chancellor's not giving them, but it was nothing new for her to have to practice patience, and she could feel, at least, 
that it was just as handy for Mr. Burridge to call on the child in town, where he spent half his time, sleeping constantly at Parker's. It was a fact that this fortunate youth called very often, and Verena saw him with Olive's full concurrence whenever she was at home. It had now been quite agreed between them that no artificial limits should be set to the famous phase, and Olive had, while it lasted, a sense of real heroism in steeling herself against uneasiness. It seemed to her, moreover, only justice that she should make some concession. If Verena made a great sacrifice of filial duty in coming to live with her, this, of course, should be permanent. She would buy off the Terrence from year to year. She must not incur the imputation, the world would judge her, in that case, ferociously, of keeping her from forming common social ties. The friendship of a young man and a young woman was, according to the pure code of New England, a common social tie, and as the weeks elapsed, Miss Chancellor saw no reason to repent of her temerity. Verena was not falling in love. She felt that she should know it, should guess it on the spot. Verena was fond of human intercourse. She was essentially a sociable creature. She liked to shine and smile and talk and listen, and so far as Henry Burridge was concerned, he introduced an element of easy and convenient relaxation into a life now a good deal stiffened, Olive was perfectly willing to own it, by great civic purposes. But the girl was being saved, without interference, by the simple operation of her interest in those very designs. From this time there was no need of putting pressure on her. Her own springs were working. The fire with which she glowed came from within. Sacredly, brightly single, she would remain. Her only espousals would be at the altar of a great cause." Olive always absented herself when Mr. Burridge was announced, and when Verena afterwards attempted to give some account of his conversation, she checked her, said she would rather know nothing about it, all with a very solemn mildness. This made her feel very superior, truly noble. She knew by this time, I scarcely can tell how, since Verena could give her no report, exactly what sort of a youth Mr. Burridge was. He was weakly pretentious." softly original, cultivated eccentricity, patronized progress, liked to have mysteries, sudden appointments to keep, anonymous persons to visit, the air of leading a double life, of being devoted to a girl whom people didn't know, or at least didn't meet. Of course he liked to make an impression on Verena, but what he mainly liked was to play her off upon the other girls, the daughters of fashion, with whom he danced at Papanti's. Such were the images that proceeded from Olive's rich, moral consciousness. Well, he is greatly interested in our movement, so much Verena once managed to announce, but the words rather irritated Miss Chancellor, who, as we know, did not care to allow for accidental exceptions in the great masculine conspiracy. In the month of March, Verena told her that Mr. Burridge was offering matrimony offering it with much insistence, begging that she would at least wait and think of it before giving him a final answer. Verena was evidently very glad to be able to say to Olive that she had assured him she couldn't think of it, and that if he expected this, he had better not come any more. He continued to come, and it was therefore to be supposed that he had ceased to count on such a concession. It was now Olive's opinion that he really didn't desire it. She had a theory that he proposed to almost any girl who was not likely to accept him. 
did it because he was making a collection of such episodes, a mental album of declarations, blushes, hesitations, refusals that just missed imposing themselves as acceptances, quite as he collected enamels and Cremona violins. He would be very sorry indeed to ally himself to the house of Tarrant, but such a fear didn't prevent him from holding it becoming in a man of taste to give that encouragement to low-born girls who were pretty, for one looked out for the special cases in which, for reasons, even the lowest might have reasons, they wouldn't rise. I told you I wouldn't marry him, and I won't, Verena said delightedly to her friend. Her tone suggested that a certain credit belonged to her for the way she carried out her assurance. I never thought you would. If you didn't want to, Olive replied to this, and Verena could have no rejoinder but the good humor that sat in her eyes, unable as she was to say that she had wanted to. They had a little discussion, however, when she intimated that she pitied him for his discomfiture, Olive's contention being that, selfish, conceited, pampered, and insincere, he might properly be left now to digest his affront. Miss Chancellor felt none of the remorse now that she would have felt six months before at standing in the way of such a chance for Verena, and she would have been very angry if anyone had asked her if she were not afraid of taking too much upon herself. She would have said, moreover, that she stood in no one's way, and that even if she were not there, Verena would never think seriously of a frivolous little man who fiddled while Rome was burning." This did not prevent Olive from making up her mind that they had better go to Europe in the spring. A year's residence in that quarter of the globe would be highly agreeable to Verena, and might even contribute to the evolution of her genius. It cost Miss Chancellor an effort to admit that any virtue still lingered in the elder world, and that it could have any important lesson for two such good Americans as her friend and herself, but it suited her just then to make this assumption which was not altogether sincere. It was recommended by the idea that it would get her companion out of the way, out of the way of officious fellow-citizens, till she should be absolutely firm on her feet, and would also give greater intensity to their own long conversation. On that continent of strangers they would cleave more closely still to each other. This, of course, would be to fly before the inevitable phase, much more than to face it, but Olive decided that if they should reach unscathed the term of their delay, the first of July, she should have faced it as much as either justice or generosity demanded. I may as well say at once that she traversed most of this period without further serious alarms, and with a great many little thrills of bliss and hope. Nothing happened to dissipate the good omens with which her partnership with Verena Tarrant was at present surrounded. They threw themselves into study— they had innumerable big books from the Athenium, and consumed the midnight oil. Henry Burridge, after Verena had shaken her head at him so sweetly and sadly, returned to New York, giving no sign. They only heard that he had taken refuge under the ruffled maternal wing. Olive, at least, took for granted the wing was ruffled. She could fancy how Mrs. Burridge would be affected by the knowledge that her son had been refused by the daughter of a mesmeric healer. She would be almost as angry as if she had learned that he had been accepted. Matthias Pardon had not yet taken his revenge in the newspapers. He was perhaps nursing his thunderbolts. At any rate, now that the operatic season had begun, 
he was much occupied in interviewing the principal singers, one of whom he described in one of the leading journals. Olive, at least, was sure it was only he who could write like that, as a dear little woman with baby dimples and kittenish movements. The Terrence were apparently given up to a measure of sensual ease with which they had not hitherto been familiar, thanks to the increase of income that they drew from their eccentric protectress. Mrs. Tarrant now enjoyed the ministrations of a girl. It was partly her pride, at any rate she chose to give it this turn, that her house had for many years been conducted without the element, so debasing on both sides of servile, mercenary labor. She wrote to Olive, she was perpetually writing to her now, but Olive never answered, that she was conscious of having fallen to a lower plane, but she admitted that it was a prop to her wasted spirit to have someone to converse with when Sela was off. Verena, of course, perceived the difference, which was inadequately explained by the theory of a sudden increase of her father's practice. Nothing of her father's had ever increased like that, and ended by guessing the cause of it a discovery which did not in the least disturb her equanimity. She accepted the idea that her parents should receive a pecuniary tribute from the extraordinary friend whom she had encountered on the threshold of womanhood, just as she herself accepted that friend's irresistible hospitality. She had no worldly pride, no traditions of independence, no ideas of what was done and what was not done, but there was only one thing that equaled this perfectly gentle and natural insensibility to favors— namely, the inveteracy of her habit of not asking them. Olive had had an apprehension that she would flush a little at learning the terms on which they should now be able to pursue their career together, but Verena never changed color. It was either not new or not disagreeable to her that the authors of her being should be bought off, silenced by money, treated as the troublesome of the lower orders are treated when they are not locked up, so that her friend had a perception, after this, that it would probably be impossible in any way ever to offend her. She was too rancorless, too detached from conventional standards, too free from private self-reference. It was too much to say of her that she forgave injuries, since she was not conscious of them. There was in forgiveness a certain arrogance of which she was incapable, and her bright mildness glided over the many traps that life sets for our consistency." Olive had always held that pride was necessary to character, but there was no peculiarity of Verena's that could make her spirit seem less pure. The added luxuries in the little house at Cambridge, which even with their help was still such a penal settlement, made her feel afresh that, before she came to the rescue, the daughter of that house had traversed a desert of sordid misery. She had cooked and washed and swept and stitched. She had worked harder than any of Miss Chancellor's servants." These things had left no trace upon her person or her mind. Everything fresh and fared renewed itself in her with extraordinary facility. Everything ugly and tiresome evaporated as soon as it touched her. But Olive deemed that, being what she was, she had a right to immense compensations. In the future she should have exceeding luxury and ease and Miss Chancellor had no difficulty in persuading herself that persons doing the high intellectual and moral work to which the two young ladies in Charles Street were now committed owed it to themselves, owed it to the groaning sisterhood to cultivate the best material conditions. She herself was nothing of a sybarite, 
and she had proved, visiting the alleys and slums of Boston in the service of the associated charities, that there was no foulness of disease or misery she feared to look in the face. But her house had always been thoroughly well-regulated. She was passionately clean, and she was an excellent woman of business. Now, however, she elevated daintiness to a religion. Her interior shone with superfluous friction, with punctuality, with winter roses. Among these soft influences, Verena herself bloomed like the flower that attains such perfection in Boston. Olive had always rated high the native refinement of her countrywomen, their latent adaptability, their talent for accommodating themselves at a glance to changed conditions. But the way her companion rose with the level of the civilization that surrounded her, the way she assimilated all delicacies and absorbed all traditions, left this friendly theory halting behind. The winter days were still indoors in Charles Street, and the winter nights secure from interruption. Our two young women had plenty of duties, but Olive had never favored the custom of running in and out. Much conference on social and reformatory topics went forward under her roof, and she received her colleagues. She belonged to twenty associations and committees, only at pre-appointed hours, which she expected them to observe rigidly. Verena's share in these proceedings was not active. She hovered over them, smiling, listening, dropping occasionally a fanciful, though never an idle word, like some gently animated image placed there for good omen. It was understood that her part was before the scenes, not behind, that she was not a prompter, but, potentially at least, a popular favorite, and that the work over which Miss Chancellor presided so efficiently was a general preparation of the platform on which, later, her companion would execute the most striking steps. The western windows of Olive's drawing-room, looking over the water, took in the red sunsets of winter, the long, low bridge that crawled on its staggering posts across the Charles, the casual patches of ice and snow, the desolate suburban horizons, peeled and made bald by the rigor of the season, the general hard, cold void of the prospect, the extrusion at Charlestown, at Cambridge, of a few chimneys and steeples, straight, sordid tubes of factories and engine-shops or spare, heavenward finger of the New England meeting-house. There was something inexorable in the poverty of the scene, shameful in the meanness of its details, which gave a collective impression of boards and tin and frozen earth, sheds and rotting piles, railway lines striding flat across a thoroughfare of puddles and tracks of the humbler, the universal horse-car, traversing obliquely this path of danger, loose fences, vacant lots, mounds of refuse, yards bestrewn with iron pipes, telegraph poles, and bare wooden backs of places. Verena thought such a view lovely, and she was by no means without excuse when, as the afternoon closed, the ugly picture was tinted with a clear, cold rosiness. The air, in its windless chill, seemed to tinkle like a crystal. The faintest gradations of tone were perceptible in the sky. The west became deep and delicate. Everything grew doubly distinct before taking on the dimness of evening. There were pink flushes on snow, tender reflections in patches of stiffened marsh, 
sounds of car-bells, no longer vulgar, but almost silvery, on the long bridge, lonely outlines of distant dusky undulations against the fading glow. These agreeable effects used to light up that end of the drawing-room, and Olive often sat at the window with her companion before it was time for the lamp. They admired the sunsets. They rejoiced in the ruddy spots projected upon the parlor wall. They followed the darkening perspective and fanciful excursions. They watched the stellar points come out at last in a colder heaven, and then, shuddering a little, arm in arm, they turned away, with a sense that the winter night was even more cruel than the tyranny of men, turned back to drawn curtains and a brighter fire and a glittering tea-tray and more and more talk about the long martyrdom of women, a subject as to which Olive was inexhaustible and really most interesting. There were some nights of deep snowfall, when Charles Street was white and muffled and the doorbell foredoomed to silence, which seemed little islands of lamplight, of enlarged and intensified vision. They read a great deal of history together, and read it ever with the same thought, that of finding confirmation in it for this idea that their sex had suffered inexpressibly, and that at any moment in the course of human affairs the state of the world would have been so much less horrible. History seemed to them in every way horrible, if women had been able to press down the scale. Verena was full of suggestions which stimulated discussions. It was she oftenest who kept in view the fact that a good many women in the past had been entrusted with power and had not always used it amiably, who brought up the wicked queens, the profligate mistresses of kings. These ladies were easily disposed of between the two, and the public crimes of Bloody Mary, the private misdemeanors of Faustina, wife of the pure Marcus Aurelius, were very satisfactorily classified. If the influence of women in the past accounted for every act of virtue that men had happened to achieve, it only made the matter balance properly that the influence of men should explain the casual irregularities of the other sex. Olive could see how few books had passed through Verena's hands, and how little the home of the Terrence had been a house of reading. But the girl now traversed the fields of literature with her characteristic lightness of step, Everything she turned to or took up became an illustration of the facility, the giftedness which Olive, who had so little of it, never ceased to wonder at and prize. Nothing frightened her. She always smiled at it. She could do anything she tried. As she knew how to do other things, she knew how to study. She read quickly and remembered infallibly, could repeat days afterward passages that she appeared only to have glanced at. Olive, of course, was more and more happy to think that their cause should have the services of an organization so rare. All this doubtless sounds rather dry, and I hasten to add that our friends were not always shut up in Miss Chancellor's strenuous parlor. In spite of Olive's desire to keep her precious inmate to herself, and to bend her attention upon their common studies, in spite of her constantly reminding Verena that this winter was to be purely educative, and that the platitudes of the satisfied and unregenerate would have little to teach her, in spite, in short, of the severe and constant duality of our young women. It must not be supposed that their life had not many personal confluence and tributaries. Individual and original as Miss Chancellor was universally acknowledged to be, she was yet a typical Bostonian, and as a typical Bostonian she could not fail to belong in some degree to a set. 
It had been said of her that she was in it, but not of it. But she was of it enough to go occasionally into other houses, and to receive their occupants in her own. It was her belief that she filled her teapot with the spoon of hospitality, and made a good many select spirits feel that they were welcome under her roof at convenient hours. She had a preference for what she called real people, and there were several whose reality she had tested by arts known to herself. This little society was rather suburban and miscellaneous. It was prolific in ladies who trotted about, early and late, with books from the Athenium nursed behind their muff, or little nosegays of exquisite flowers that they were carrying as presents to each other. Marina, who, when Olive was not with her, indulged in a good deal of desultory contemplation at the window, saw them pass the house in Charles Street, always apparently straining a little, as if they might be too late for something. At almost any time, for she envied their preoccupation, she would have taken the chance with them. Very often, when she described them to her mother, Mrs. Tarrant didn't know who they were. There were even days, she had so many discouragements, when it seemed as if she didn't want to know. So long as they were not someone else, it seemed to be no use that they were themselves. Whoever they were, they were sure to have that defect. Even after all her mother's disquisitions, Verena had but vague ideas as to whom she would have liked them to be, and it was only when the girls talked of the concerts, to all of which Olive subscribed and conducted her inseparable friend, that Mrs. Tarrant appeared to feel in any degree that her daughter was living up to the standard formed for her in their Cambridge home. As all the world knows, the opportunities in Boston for hearing good music are numerous and excellent, and it had long been Miss Chancellor's practice to cultivate the best. She went in, as the phrase is, for the superior programs, and that high, dim, dignified music-hall, which has echoed in its time to so much eloquence and so much melody, and of which the very proportions and colors seem to teach respect and attention, shed the protection of its illuminated cornice, this winter, upon no faces more intelligently upturned than those of the young women, for whom Bach and Beethoven only repeated, in a myriad forms, the idea that was always with them. Symphonies and fugues only stimulated their convictions, excited their revolutionary passion, led their imagination further in the direction in which it was always pressing. It lifted them to immeasurable heights, and as they sat looking at the great florid, somber organ overhanging the bronze statue of Beethoven, they felt that this was the only temple in which the votaries of their creed could worship. And yet their music was not their greatest joy, for they had two others which they cultivated at least as zealously. One of these was simply the society of old Miss Birdseye, of whom Olive saw more this winter than she had ever seen before. It had become apparent that her long and beautiful career was drawing to a close. Her earnest, unremitting work was over. Her old-fashioned weapons were broken and dull. Olive would have liked to hang them up as venerable relics of a patient fight, and this was what she seemed to do when she made the poor lady relate her battles— never glorious and brilliant, but obscure and wastefully heroic, call back the figures of her companions in arms, exhibit her medals and scars. Miss Birdseye knew that her uses were ended. She might pretend still to go about the business of unpopular causes, might fumble for papers in her immemorial satchel and think she had important appointments, might sign petitions, attend conventions, say to Dr. Prance that if she would only make her sleep— she should live to see a great many improvements yet. She ached and was weary, growing almost as glad to look back, a great anomaly for Miss Birdseye, as to look 
forward. She let herself be coddled now by her friends of the new generation. There were days when she seemed to want nothing better than to sit by Olive's fire and ramble on about the old struggles, with a vague, comfortable sense. No physical rapture of Miss Birdseyes could be very acute, of immunity from wet feet, from the draughts that prevail at thin meetings, of independence of street-cars that would probably arrive overflowing, and also a pleased perception, not that she was an example to these fresh lives, which began with more advantages than hers, but that she was in some degree an encouragement, as she helped them to measure the way the new truths had advanced, being able to tell them of such a different state of things when she was a young lady, the daughter of a very talented teacher. Indeed, her mother had been a teacher, too, down in Connecticut. She had always had for Olive a kind of aroma of martyrdom, and her battered, unremunerated, unpensioned old age brought angry tears, springing from depths of outraged theory into Miss Chancellor's eyes. For Verena, too, she was a picturesque, humanitary figure. Verena had been in the habit of meeting martyrs from her childhood up, but she had seen none with so many reminiscences as Miss Birdseye, or who had been so nearly scorched by penal fires. She had had escapes in the early days of abolitionism, which it was a marvel she could tell with so little implication that she had shown courage. She had roamed through certain parts of the South, carrying the Bible to the slave, and more than one of her companions in the course of these expeditions had been tarred and feathered. She herself, at one season, had spent a month in a Georgian jail. She had preached temperance in Irish circles where the doctrine was received with missiles. She had interfered between wives and husbands mad with drink. She had taken filthy children, picked up in the street to her own poor rooms, and had removed their pestilent rags and washed their sore bodies with slippery little hands. In her own person she appeared to Olive and Verena a representative of suffering humanity. The pity they felt for her was part of their pity for all who were weakest and most hardly used, and it struck Miss Chancellor, more especially, that this frumpy little missionary was the last link in a tradition, and that when she should be called away the heroic age of New England life, the age of plain living and high thinking, of pure ideals and earnest effort, of moral passion and noble experiment, would effectually be closed. It was the perennial freshness of Miss Birdseye's faith that had had such a contagion for these modern maidens, the unquenched flame of her transcendentalism, the simplicity of her vision, the way in which, in spite of mistakes, deceptions, the changing fashions of reform, which make the remedies of a previous generation look as ridiculous as their bonnets, the only thing that was still actual for her was the elevation of this species by the reading of Emerson and the frequentation of Tremont Temple. Olive had been active enough for years in the city missions. She, too, had scoured dirty children, and in squalid lodging-houses had gone into rooms where the domestic situation was strained, and the noises made the neighbors turn pale. But she reflected that after such exertions she had the refreshment of a pretty house, a drawing-room full of flowers, a crackling hearth, where she threw in pine-cones and made them snap, an imported tea-service, a chickering piano, and the Deutsch Rundschau, whereas Miss Birdseye had only a bare, vulgar room, with a hideous flowered carpet, it looked like a dentist's, a cold furnace, the evening paper, and Dr. Prance. 
Olive and Verena were present at another of her gatherings before the winter ended. It resembled the occasion that we described at the beginning of this history, with the difference that Mrs. Farrander was not there to oppress the company with her greatness, and that Verena made a speech without the cooperation of her father. This young lady had delivered herself with even finer effect than before, and Olive could see how much she had gained, in confidence and range of illusion, since the educative process in Charles Street began. Her motif was now a kind of unprepared tribute to Miss Birdseye, the fruit of the occasion and of the unanimous tenderness of the younger members of the circle, which made her a willing mouthpiece. She pictured her laborious career, her early associates, Eliza P. Mosley was not neglected as Verena passed, her difficulties and dangers and triumphs, her humanizing effect upon so many, her serene and honored old age, expressed, in short, as one of the ladies said, just the very way they all felt about her. Verena's face brightened and grew triumphant as she spoke, but she brought tears into the eyes of most of the others. It was Olive's opinion that nothing could be more graceful and touching, and she saw that the impression made was now deeper than on the former evening. Miss Birdseye went about with her eighty years of innocence, her undiscriminating spectacles, asking her friends if it wasn't perfectly splendid. She took none of it to herself. She regarded it only as a brilliant expression of Verena's gift. Olive thought afterwards that if a collection could only be taken up on the spot, the good lady would be made easy for the rest of her days. Then she remembered that most of her guests were as impecunious as herself. I have intimated that our young friends had a source of fortifying emotion which was distinct from the hours they spent with Beethoven and Bach, or in hearing Miss Birdseye describe Concord as it used to be. This consisted in the wonderful insight they had obtained into the history of feminine anguish. They perused that chapter perpetually and zealously, and they derived from it the purest part of their mission. Olive had pored over it so long, so earnestly, that she was now in complete possession of the subject. It was the, it was the one thing in life which she felt she had really mastered. She was able to exhibit it to Verena with the greatest authority and accuracy, to lead her up and down, in and out, through all the darkest and most torturous passages. We know that she was without belief in her own eloquence, but she was very eloquent when she reminded Verena how the exquisite weakness of women had never been their defense, but had only exposed them to sufferings more acute than masculine grossness can conceive. Their odious partner had trampled upon them from the beginning of time, and their tenderness, their abnegation, had been his opportunity. All the bullied wives, the stricken mothers, the dishonored, deserted maidens, who have lived on the earth and longed to leave it, passed and repassed before her eyes, and the interminable dim procession seemed to stretch out a myriad hands to her. She sat with them at their trembling vigils, listened for the tread, the voice, at which they grew pale and sick, walked with them by the dark waters that offered to wash away misery and shame, took with them even when the vision grew intense, the last shuddering leap. She had analyzed to an extraordinary fineness their susceptibility, their softness. She knew, or she thought she knew, all the possible tortures of anxiety, of suspense and dread, and she had made up her mind that it was women, in the end, who had paid for everything. In the last resort the whole burden of the human lot came upon them. It pressed upon them far more than on the others, the intolerable load of fate. 
It was they who sat cramped and chained to receive it. It was they who had done all the waiting and taken all the wounds. The sacrifices, the blood, the tears, the terrors were theirs. Their organism was in itself a challenge to suffering, and men had practiced upon it with an impudence that knew no bounds. As they were the weakest, most had been wrung from them, and as they were the most generous, they had been most deceived. Olive Chancellor would have rested her case, had it been necessary, on those general facts, and her simple and comprehensive contention was that the peculiar wretchedness, which had been the very essence of the feminine lot, was a monstrous artificial imposition, crying aloud for redress. She was willing to admit that women, too, could be bad, that there were many about the world who were false, immoral, vile, but their errors were as nothing to their sufferings. They had expiated, in advance, an eternity, if need be, of misconduct. Olive poured forth these views to her listening and responsive friend. She presented them again and again, and there was no light in which they did not seem to palpitate with truth. Verena was immensely wrought upon. A subtle fire passed into her. She was not so hungry for revenge as Olive, but at the last, before they went to Europe, I shall take no place to describe the manner in which she threw herself into that project. She quite agreed with her companion that after so many ages of wrong, it would also be after the European journey, men must take their turn. Men must pay. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty Recording by Elizabeth Morant LizMorant at gmail.com